This is Black Talk, where global black experts mix with local voices from the black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-black racism. We're pleased to welcome Dr. Afua Cooper to the show. Dr. Cooper is a multi-award winning speaker, scholar, historian, author, poet, performer, and cultural commentator. She served as Halifax's seventh poet laureate, holds numerous awards for her work in human rights in Nova Scotia, and received the Portia White Prize, Nova Scotia's highest award for artistic excellence. Dr. Cooper is with Dalhousie University's Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Pender, with our guest, Dr. Afua Cooper. So, Dr. Cooper, we're delighted to speak with you today. While reading a National Post article about you, I learned that you spent your childhood growing up in Jamaica before moving to Canada later on in the early 80s to complete your PhD at the University of Toronto. So could you talk a little bit about what that transition was like and if you faced any challenges making the transition to a new country? Right, thank you. Yes, transitioning to a new country, it was hard. It was really, really very hard. I suffered from culture shock, um, no doubt, for about two years. I just asked myself, why did I move to Canada? And um, it, it it was just so different. Everything was so different. I mean, there are similarities, you know, the, the English language, even though it's a different kind of English, but that that helped. Um, the fact also that where I was in Toronto uh, at the time wasn't far from Jamaica by air. It's through, it was and still is three and a half hours. But the 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 culture shock just being. Um, closed in, just being closed in. It's a closed kind of environment. You really don't talk to your neighbors. Coming from a culture in which, um, even if you're living in a city, and I was living in Kingston, but you still talk to your neighbors. You walk on the street, you talk to people. People talk to you. In Toronto, it it wasn't the same. So, But I, I did find a lot of solace in my studies in the university, in schools, in getting involved in activities like, you know, the African Caribbean Student Association. I, I think those student associations are really lifesavers, or they can be. It's a place where you find your footing. I certainly found my footing. I got involved in community work in the larger Black community. I joined, I volunteered as a tutor. So just finding a, a Black space and, you know, really a diverse Black space with people coming from everywhere in the African diaspora. That helped, and that was very comforting. And eventually, there was a point when it felt like it was my home. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cooper, or Apua, if I may. Sure. <laughs> You're considered to be one of Canada's most versatile poets. And you are publishing several different anthologies in our, around the world. I was able to come across one of your brilliant poems, uh, Memories Have Tongue. Mm-hmm. I like that one. And I know that you have, um, uh, you've had po- poems recorded as well and performed as well at national and international music festivals. What is it about your poetry that is so compatible with music and uh, particularly Jamaican music, reggae music? Well, you know, uh, to answer that, I... I came of age in in the era when reggae was at its heights, or one would say reggae is always at its heights. <laughs> but I'm talking about um, the late seventies, finishing up high school, and was really immersed in the high school art scene. And then we had teachers who would take us to plays at the university and poetry events. If you think at that time, who were like some of the leading figures in reggae, of course, the, you know, the whalers and every other name you can think of. So it was that era where music and literature and poetry were all in the same metrics, came out to the same metrics. So 
that is how I came to poetry. I came to poetry in 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 a very oral way, but also in a written way. Think about my primary school where we had to write poems every Friday and we had to read poets. But then we had to recite, you see. You had to recite. The recitation was a thing, right? But it it was the era of the 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 spoken word we and the DJs like you, Roy, and Toasting. I grew up in Kingston, so that you were hearing this all the time. It was a very oral, A-U-R-A-L kind of culture. You heard and you spoke. That was where my inspiration came from. So I think it was kind of, and you know, they said dub poetry is a child of reggae music, which is true because the First dub poets, you know, the whole idea of the dub, which is a dub side of the, the 45, where you have just the instrumentation. And so the early DJs like um, Uri and Big Youth and so on, then they would chant their words over the drum and bass, right? And you had the dub. So the poets took their inspiration from that. So I think that's, that is weird. That happened. And, but also, even going back further, you know, I was born in Westmoreland, which is a rural parish where people talked. As a kid growing up, I was always kind of a little bit cheesed with my parents or especially the, the grandparents and the aunts and so on, because they, they were always speaking to you in a kind of code. <laughs> I remember one time I said something to my aunt and she said, hmm, scornful dog, I'm dirty pudding. I was like nine. I'm like, what? What do you mean by that? Just speak plain to me, lady. But that's how they would respond or reply to you in, in these sayings, in these parables. So after a while, that becomes that becomes also part of your your psyche and you um, absorb these sayings. You absorb these sayings, right? If you're a little boastful or a little show-off, then they'd quote some Bible scriptures like, pride go it before a hearty spirit, a destruction before a fall, all those things, right? I, I mix that one up, but pride go it before destruction. So, <laughs> so it, we were being spoken to. There was always that orality in the culture and in the language, which I absorbed, and I am forever grateful for that upbringing. I want to just talk to you about something that I read. It was really impressive. Um, in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, you played a large role in the creation of the Black Canadian Studies Association. Um, and you guys had sent interim objectives that included creating institutional infrastructure of Black Canadian Studies in Canada, um, supporting and facilitating interaction, exchange, and networking between scholars, and providing support for Black Canadian scholars and academics, among many other objectives. So this is this is big, obviously. I, I was wondering what motivated you to get involved in this project. Thank you. So at that time, I was at Simon Fraser University. I was <clears throat> a Ruth Wynne Woodward Chair in Women's Studies. And um, so one of the things I had to do as chair you kind of you had to do something called a community outreach. So I basically did, other than my regular teaching uh, and other um, administrative duties, uh, you had to do uh, these this outreach. So I did two things. I um, curated an exhibit called Black Communities in British Columbia, um, which looked at the history, the Black history of BC from 1854 to that time, 2008, 2009, because it was BC's 150th and they had really left out the Black experience. So that made me cheese. So I did the exhibit. The other thing I did was I'm thinking, how can we really create a vibrant Black studies program in Canada? You know, I saw myself as a Black studies scholar. My PhD was in Black Canadian history from University of Toronto. And I've been teaching uh, Black history, women's history, Black women's history. So the other piece of my community outreach was to call a meeting of people in Canada, scholars, artists, activists, community leaders. I mean, one of the people who came was actually worked with Canadian immigration, with refugees. So pe people like those, so everyone who could come, who did anything at all with Blackness or Black people. So I called and hosted that meeting at Simon Fraser University. Um, overall, uh, at least 30 people showed up. Most of them were university teachers. 
but we had um, community elders, we had community leaders, we had artists. And it was great because one person came from the U.S., one came from England, and the others came from around Canada. One came from the Caribbean, too. So we held that meeting for three days and hammered out, you know, like a working document. Well, the meeting ended and everybody went home. And I I was the one who was left with, with finishing it up, with polishing it up and with crafting it, crafting it into a cohesive document. We subsequently met the following year. This was 2009, as you said. We met the following year in 2010 at um, Campus Saint-Jean, which is at the University of Alberta, and met regularly over that time. So I was chair for 10 years. And I, in 2019, I gave it up. I said, you know, at the uh, big congress that was held at UBC, I turned <laughs> turned in my hat or whatever the saying goes, um, and other people took over the chairship of it. But it was really to articulate a vision of Black Canadian studies and to for us to see Black Canadian studies as an inquiry, an endeavor rather, that's worth our scholarly attention and for it to be placed on the map of Canadian studies. It's, it's sort of like my life's work, my dream, you know, ever since I was about 25, trying to, to make this happen. Yeah, that's a, such a good story. And, you know, you think about a Black Canadian Studies Association and you think, hmm, is that something that would ever happen? But then, you know, you get to reading and you see, like, not only did it happen, you you had a, such a large part in making that happen. And so I think that's a really cool story. And I think that's really important, um, you know, to establish something like that, because these Black Studies programs are so few and far in between. And so to have a kind of a meeting spot where all the scholars can come together and and share ideas is really important, vital, and just helpful, I'd say. So yeah. That's really awesome. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, it's amazing that you your literature, your, your writing, your poetry, your novels, uh, all seem to have um, a focus on educating Canadians about the Black experience. And, uh, you know, the history of Black people in Canada. A lot of mm. people don't know very much about the history of Black people in Canada because it's not taught in schools very often. Um, I consider you to be a true Pan-Africanist in the sense that you have tried to link continental Africa with uh, with the diaspora of Africans uh, from Africa who are living now in Canada, the United States, and, and Britain, and elsewhere, and the Caribbean. Why is it so important for you to be uh, to have this sort of Pan-Africanist orientation in your work? Thank you for your question. Yeah, I, 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 that's a, as a result of how I was raised and, and my education. I often tell the story about growing up in Kingston in East Kingston and finding out about the apartheid system and was just flabbergasted because that didn't make sense to me because I'm saying, well, it's Africa and the black people in Africa are black people. So they should, you know, be empowered and ruling themselves. How can a white minority be, you know, having this devastating impact on the lives of Africans. But I learned that. I learned about apartheid because I heard some men talking at my uncle's shop. He had a little ice cream shop, a little refreshment shop. And they were sitting in front of the shop and playing Ludo and dominoes. And um, there was some news on the radio about apartheid. And and they were talking about that. You know, this constant refrain about, boy, black people born for suffer. Why we must have suffered so you know, and then condemning the apartheid system. So here I was in East Kingston, Jamaica, getting education about South Africa. Of course, there was this big identification with the continent of Africa in a working class urban environment. And as as a child, say from the age of 10 to about 17, I lived in a neighborhood where there was the, the National Library of Jamaica, which was downtown on a place called East Street and Tower Street. And there was also a library there called the Institute of Jamaica, yeah, the Junior Center Library, where they had all kinds of Pan-African activities, I would say. We, we as kids, we were shown these films 
of the 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 MPLA. <laughs> the, so, somebody, somebody, somewhere decided that in this working class neighborhood, people were gonna get an education. We were watching films about MPLA and um, the struggles in Mozambique and the coronation of Emperor Haile Selassie. It was just extraordinary, right? And then they all had all these dance classes and there was a woman, I think her name was Cheryl Ryman, who taught African dance. And we were little kids, we were doing all these things. So African Caribbean Institute of Jamaica, that was on North Street. Um, where they would have the dance classes and pottery classes and somebody who had gone to Ghana to do um, an MA in anthropology would come back and had these pictures of the expert woman in Ghana who was making pots and there's an expert woman in Spanish town, Spanish town Jamaica, who was also doing similar pottery and the person was saying, well, the style that the Spanish town Potter was using comes directly from the style in, in Ghana, North Street, Kingston, African Caribbean Institute of Jamaica. Name of the anthropologist was Roderick A. Banks. So that was my education. And in school, um, a similar thing was going on. I went to high, high school, you know, my high school ended at the end of the 70s. And so it was, um, I think that era it was the era of Michael Manley's socialist government, right? And it, refle- it was reflected in the curriculum. Someone at the Ministry of Education thought we should learn about Africa, thought we should learn about the Caribbean, thought that the O-level curric- literature curriculum should be on Caribbean writers. So it was just these confluence of factors. And of course, the music was going on, the reggae music, um, the, this flooring of the arts. So with that came the huge identification with the continent of Africa, with Africans and with the struggle in Africa. Of course, I also have to mention the, the Rastafari movement, right? We're very strong at that time, I'm very much into culture. So I, I think my, my adhering to Pan-Africanism was just as natural as breathing, right? Then coming to Canada, and I talked about earlier being introduced in a real way to people from the African diaspora, solidified that education. But also, this was what I was practicing. Also, I was living. My um, husband, actually, who, who is deceased, is from um, Guinea, the Republic of Guinea. Um, Guinea Conakry, but grew up in Liberia. And then his ancestors came from Senegal and Mali. So I mentioned that to say my children, you know, they have this multiple, multiple African diaspora heritage or heritages. <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's super important, um, you know, to stay centered in the African diaspora and to 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 make sure we acknowledge, you know, that we're all from the same place and we all have relations. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a stone throw away. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about what you've done for Black Studies. So you'll see in universities now in Canada, you know, you might see in a, in a history department somewhere, you know, a course, you know, a single course on, say, for example, pre-colonial Africa or something like that. It'll teach you a little bit about, you know, the history there, um, but, but nothing, no, no follow-up, nothing else. Um, what I was really surprised to find out about you was that um, in 2016, you you made history when you led the creation of a Black minor program in African Diaspora Studies at Dalhousie University. Sorry, I read the interview you did with University Affairs, and you spoke about how it's been a hit with the students, uh, you know, repeatedly generating a wait list for the 70-person intro class. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole minor program, so we're talking, you know, multiple courses, uh, a little bit of continuity, you know, the, the ideas don't just come and go without with one semester. So I thought that was really awesome. Um, how rewarding was it, you know, to see such a large project through from start to finish and to watch uh, your students race to enroll in droves and to watch it be so well received? It, it still is um, very rewarding. It's, you know, at that time I was a Black Studies, James Robinson Johnson Chair in Black Canadian Studies, so I said, well, we have a chair in Black Canadian Studies. It's an endowed chair, but there's no Black Studies program. So that kind of, that was odd. <laughs> that was really odd. So, um, 
you know, I'm I'm like my mother. When when I see something that needs to be done, I do it. So I'm thinking, well, the least we can do is to put together a minor. Um, so that that's how that happened. But you know, someone look, it has to go through all this kind of, you know, administrative inquiry or interrogation because the chair of the council of chairs they have to look at the minor then it goes off to the dean the council of deans and someone as it was passing through the um the system someone said this shouldn't be a minor this should be a major because we had surpassed the course limit for a minor we had so many courses we were fortunate that within my faculty which is a faculty of arts and social sciences that there were a number of a black or african professors who who were in, involved in this so it it was passed as a minor and um the courses were all fully subscribed and now happily we are working on it this program to become not only a major but to um that a bachelor's program in black studies be established so that's that's the goal at for which we are we're working right now. So the the minor was so hugely successful, as you said, from 2016 to present time, that everyone agreed that it should be a major, and then eventually a bachelor's. I was just about to ask you, just based on your comments, that you had so many courses, almost too many of, or or too many for a minor. Um, yeah. So you're you're thinking about making it not only a major but a, an even bigger thing. I was wondering. Do we have any um, estimated time of arrival for for something like that? Well, not before 2023. Okay. Uh, These things, they have to go through all kinds of, (laughs) jump through all kinds of hoops. Mm -hmm. And they have to pass the Senate. Senate has to approve it. Then once it happens, it has to go to the the path that it's on. um, I'm confident that, uh, you know, based on what you've been able to accomplish so far, if you were in Alberta, it has to go through that ministerial level in Alberta before it's finally passed, uh, uh, approved. Well, I, I, I'm confident that, uh, you know, based on what you've been able to accomplish so far, it, it's, it's most likely not far off. Yeah, thank you. You know, mm. at the Senate level, so we're, we're getting there, yeah. Now, I went to Dalhousie. Did my master's at Dow. Okay, okay. So I, 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 I kind of feel I, I know that area very well. Was it in Polisai? Yeah, I did in Polisai. I did in Polisai, and um, uh, and it was a wonderful experience to live in Halifax because you know it's like a real university town. You know, yeah, it is. all the different universities are are there. But one thing I never really heard very much about Thomas Peters. Which you've written about, I read only recently of the stuff on Thomas Peters and and the twelve hundred or so black loyalists who fought for the British in the American uh, Revolutionary War. Um, we know that um, many of them came, of course, to Nova Scotia, and many of them came to New Brunswick. This character, Thomas Peters, we should learn a lot more about him because I think, um, based on what what you said about him, I mean, he has been a real leader, um, not just a military leader, but also, I guess, a, almost like a spiritual leader for, for Black people who lived in Canada and who expected to have uh, land given to them. They were given promises by the British, and the British never came through with those promises. So at the end of the day, he was able to encourage 1,200 of those people to leave and go to, uh, to Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone, of course, Freetown, you know that there's a, a pretty large contingent of people there in Sierra uh, in Freetown who came out of Nova Scotia, who came out of New Brunswick. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Thomas Peters so our, our audience can learn a little history about the, the importance of this man and what he meant to to Black people in Canada and also in Africa. I can see the Pan-Africanism yeah. coming in there. Yeah, absolutely. So Thomas Peters, you're right. He was a military leader, spiritual leader, a political leader. He survived the Middle Passage. He was um, captured in Africa and put on board a ship and, and made it to the side of the world, to Louisiana, in fact, where he was sold as a slave. He eventually was resold to North Carolina. 
its owner there was a man called Duncan Campbell. Now the American Revolution happened. The British said to the enslaved Africans, if you escape your masters and fight for us or work for us in whatever capacity at the end of the war, you'll get your freedom and you'll get your freedom at this point. The British thought they were going to win the war. So there was no talk about land or um, evacuation to a British colony. So Thomas Peters and many others in the area where he was, Wilmington, North Carolina, they escaped, went to the British and did um, active service in the British military. He was part of a corps, a provincial corps called the Black Pioneers. And he reached the rank of sergeant. Now, the war ended, 1783. The British didn't win the war as they thought they would. But anyway, they said, well, if if these runaway uh, slaves are with us for a year or more, we will transport them to a British territory and where they will have land and you know, rights as British subject. So over 3,000 were evacuated, including Peters and his family, his wife and two kids, evacuated from New York Harbor to Nova Scotia and, and New Brunswick between, you know, 1783-1784. Well, when they got to Canada, the land wasn't forthcoming either. Human rights or the civil rights were, <laughs> weren't forthcoming either. In fact, things got really bad for them. There were race riots. White people mobbed their community, burned down their town, um, refused to give them the rations to tie them over. It was just awful. And so for nine years, they petitioned, they wrote to both governments, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, till eventually Thomas Peters went to England to tell the British government, hey, the officials you have in Canada, they're awful, they're wicked, they're racist. At that time, the, the Sierra Leone colony was gearing up and they needed settlers. So the British government agreed to pay the way of people, these black loyalists, if they wanted to leave and go to Africa. And that's what happened. So Peters came back, tramped throughout both provinces, and eventually 1,200 people um, showed up at the harbor in Halifax. And in January 15, 1792, they left. They left on 15 ships. So you're asking me the question at the right time because the anniversary just passed. Today is the, today is the 15th, you know. So two months ago was the 230th anniversary of the departure of these people from Canada to Freetown, Sierra Leone. And they fled colonial racism, indifference, um, and racial hatred. But they persevered for nine years. After that time, it was like, no, we can't take this anymore. As one of the settlers, I think it was Henry Beaverhoot, who actually came from the Caribbean. Beaverhoot was from the Danish West Indies, but had been taken to the, you know, the United, what became the United States as an enslaved person. Um, and Danish West Indies, of course, became the U.S. Virgin Islands. And it was, I believe it was Beaver who, who said, all we want is for our children to be free and happy. And, you know, that summed it up for me. And so, yeah, Thomas Peters was, you know, he had leadership during the war. He, he was an influential figure in the Black Pioneers. When they came to Nova Scotia, he and he saw the wrongs. He began petitioning. He began canvassing the community. He went over to New Brunswick because he thought things would be better there, but it wasn't. And he also mobilized the New Brunswick community. He's, a, he's considered a founding father of Sierra Leone. If you go to downtown Freetown, there's a big cotton tree where they said that <clears throat> the Nova Scotians arrived in March. No, right now, in March 1792, there's a cotton tree and that they spent their first night under the cotton tree. Peters, there's a statue of Thomas Peters right there by the cotton tree. So he's seen as a founding father of Sierra Leone, truly a Pan-Africanist, because he himself was uh, was born in, in, in Nigeria. He was Nigerian. He was Yoruba, uh, ca captured and kidnapped into slavery. I consider him to be an Atlantic revolutionary. He truly was a revolutionary in every sense of the word and an early Black power advocate. I wonder, he didn't get a chance to, to really pursue his leadership in Sierra Leone that long because I, I think he died fairly soon. He died shortly after. He They arrived in March. He died June 26th. So just three months because the other story, which I haven't talked about, 
is that once they got to Sierra Leone, same thing. Yes, that's a problem. British reneged done their, their promise again because they were promised in London and in Halifax that they would get full civil rights. You know, they would be part of the government. They would get land. What happened, also whites went to Sierra Leone because in the minds of the British, which the black people didn't know, was that the whites would go to Sierra Leone and be the, the political leaders. They would run the government. So there's the petition, the Henry Beaverhood petition, he said, we were promised in London and Halifax that we would be ruling ourselves. And this is not what's happening. And so Peters, yeah, he went head to head with John Clarkson, who was sent to be governor of Sierra Leone. He said, no, 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 this is right. It was really wickedness, pure wickedness, because once they got to Sierra Leone, the whites said, okay, uh, no, you can't be independent farmers. You have to work for us. You have to work for the Sierra Leone company. So they wanted them to work for them as sharecroppers. And the Nova Scotians, as they were called in Sierra Leone, said, hell no, <laughs> we're not having any of that. We, and then the governor at this point, Governor Macaulay, said, okay, do you guys want to go back to Nova Scotia? And they're like, no, we're not going on the high seas again. This is it for us. And we're, we're going to get what we deserve. So in 1800, they rose up against the Sierra Leone company, like full-blown war. But Peters by then had died. But for the three months he was in he uh, in Freetown, he went head-to-head with the Sierra Leone company, which was the official government. Um, and that's why today the Sierra Leone, uh, uh, Sierra Leoneans today recognize him as a founding father because it was his vision. He went to London. He um, accepted this role or created this new future for the people in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, basically led them, got the British government to pay their way to Africa. And once he got there, you know, he's an old fighter. He's a soldier. (laughs) He's a black pioneer. He struggled for nine years. He survived the Middle Passage. Peters is like saying, no, 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 hell no, 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 no. You know, it's black power in Sierra Leone. It's black power. So he's recognized as a founding father, and you can see why. It's so important. It's so important to get these lessons. And it shows you why these African programs are so important as well. But I want to switch gears a little bit and and talk about another one of your achievements. So in 2018, you were appointed as Halifax's seventh poet laureate. When I heard this term, I was like, well, this sounds very prestigious. And I did a little bit of research, and perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong. But for our viewers that uh, might be unfamiliar, uh, it's an official appointment by a government or a conferring institution that typically comes with the responsibility of composing poems for special events and occasions. This is very cool. You know, this is um, a big deal. And what I when I looked a little bit deeper, what I was able to see was that um, you're you're very involved in what's called dub poetry. I, I would imagine that uh, some of these dub poetry performances that you've that you've done played a large role in securing this position. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about that. Uh, could, could you speak a little bit about dub poetry in general for those that might not be familiar and uh, what your journey within dub poetry has been like? So thank you. So I'll answer the last part first. My journey within dub poetry began in high school, as we were talking about earlier, just being exposed to to, to reggae culture, you know, in my literature class, I, w- I was fortunate to have teachers who we studied, you know, Caribbean written literature and also William Shakespeare. Um, but they also bring the poetry of the, the vernacular in our classroom and to, to make us realize that this is as important, right? Um, so the poetry was one of these vernaculars. And I had a, a professor in college who, who we, we had to write. We had to write our own poems. And I, I, I was kind of, I've always been, since a, a young child, being inclined toward poetry. I, I love poetry. But the poetry is also poetry. So you can write it in the language of the nation, which Kamal Brathwaite calls nation language, which is Patois, our Creole. Or you can write it in standard English. It doesn't matter. 
Uh, my thing is both languages are my heritage. So I, I claim both, right? I claim both, which whatever, standard English, Southern Ontario English, standard Jamaican English, Jamaican Patois Creole, whatever it is, Caribbean Creole. So it is, it is the, the poetic tradition which has diverse, diverse roots, right? Perhaps the more salient is that of the, the various African um, traditions, even though we are not speaking in, a, you know, in an African language or the language we speak is whatever standard English, <laughs> whatever of the English and whatever the Creole is. So our Creole could be Martinican, French Creole. Um, in my case, it's Jamaican. So it was with this sensibility that I engaged the world of poetry. So, you know, you might see me write a very um, English-based poem, no Creole, but my, my, this, my sensibility as a, a, a woman of Africa, as a child of Jamaica, as a, a person of the world, as a citizen of the world is there. So that's how I engaged the poetry, right, with this, with, with, with this sensibility of being rooted, being rooted in an African tradition of um, cultural and creative expression. So becoming poet laureate, that, that was that was nice. That was really wonderful because you have your commission to write um, poems, you speak, it's it's a municipal, right? It's the city of Halifax. So you read poetry at the opening of council, of city council. You're called on at various and sundry events to be, um, to, to share your poetry. It could be at a daycare center. It could be at a tree planting ceremony. It could be at um, Remembrance Day. It could be at the Halifax Explosion commemoration, which is December 6th in 1917. You know, the munitions exploded in Halifax Harbor in the middle of World War I, killing thousands of people and destroying parts of the city. Um, the part that I read that I found intriguing and that I liked very much was that uh, persons and community groups, they'll say, oh, we have a poet laureate. The city has an official poet. We should have the official poet here. You know, and you're called on to be this official poet. So I found it interesting, but but very delightful at the same time. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't hurt, you know, to have your poems recognized in such a way, and to to get that recognition and and to have that position. So that was really cool to learn about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's clearly a, a, a musicality uh, built into your poetry. And coming from the Caribbean, I, I'm very familiar with the poetry because I'm from Barbados originally. So we, we respect Jamaicans uh, and their contribution from Bob Marley to, to others, but particularly the, the poetry um, in Jamaica. Is it possible to give us, uh, the audience, a little taste of what uh, the poetry sounds like? Oh, yeah, sure. I'm just thinking, which poem can I say? Um <clears throat> Yeah, you know what? I'll do one that's right for the moment. It's called um, Nuclear. Nuclear weapon is a danger. Nuclear weapon is a danger. Nuclear weapon is a killer. Nuclear weapon is a danger. Nuclear weapon is a killer. No winner in a nuclear war. No winner in a nuclear war. If you come from near or you come from far, there's no winner in a nuclear war. I am hungry, so unhappy, starving, and I'm going mad. No clothes on my back, nothing to give my child. Yet every day them just a stockpile, stockpile, stockpile. Ooh. Chernobyl, I say it did kill a whole heap of people and make some disabled. Chernobyl, I say it did kill a whole heap of people and make some disabled. In the Ukraine, nuclear terror did rain. In the Ukraine, nuclear terror did rain. I hope, I hope it never, never happen again. Lord, have mercy. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that was more like a DJ. <laughs> that was more like a DJ style. Wow. Amazing. So, oh, we're missing right now. We're missing the yeah. drums and we're missing the, yeah. uh, the you know, the, but you know what? I wrote that poem music. at the Chernobyl um, nuclear disaster. Wow. And I've been meditating on it the past week. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. I hope that don't happen again, right? It's like history repeats itself in a way. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's uh, incredible. And the fact that, you know, we, right now we're on the verge of another potential war. Yeah. Of nuclear weapons. Um, yeah. Scary, scary part of it. So thanks very much for doing that. It's, yeah. Like, yeah. But people hear me say this one. No, they said they would think I wrote it. No, but I didn't. Yeah. That's, that's, I didn't. I wrote it at the, the Chernobyl um, incident. So it's like, wow, you know. It's kind of creepy, <laughs> but yeah. that, that's an example. That's wonderful. I think, the, the, but listen, let me, I think it's important uh, for you to tackle racism uh, in the workplace. And I think you've done your job on that right now. I noticed that you've been advertising possibility of, of targeting predominantly white privileged members of board of directors of big companies or senior managers in business. You also target senior university officials. Uh, who are predominantly white, sometimes predominantly male, uh, in many Canadian universities, with your anti-Black racism message. So what kind of success have you had so far in terms of the agitation to, to, to get people to sort of loosen up with this, uh, what I call structural racism, systemic and structural within institutions? And, uh, and to also ensure that Black Canadians are, are at the center of the telling of the Canadian history, which is I think another part of this. Well, you know, I've been, thank you for that question, Andy. I've been, um, for years now, I've been speaking, giving lectures to to some of these people, to uh, boards of directors, to organizations, institutions, universities. Um, but in, in terms of the struggle against anti-Black racism, but I can tell you, like many people, um, perhaps yourselves, but I and I know many people listening and around the world, when the George Floyd incident, when the murder, public murder of George Floyd happened in May 2020, it was it was it was another of these turning points. Right? I'm thinking, no, this can't something like this can't be happening. But of course, we know it happened to George Floyd till it was recorded. And and we saw it in living color, so to speak. But even before Mr. Floyd and even after. They were murdering people. The cops were murdering people. But that was a point in which I, I like really had to go deep in myself and ask the question again, what is the purpose of my life? It, it was one of the, you know, I was plunged into an existential crisis for, for, for a while, at least for a full week where I had to, examine myself and examine myself. Why am I doing this? You know, for years, for decades, all of us, we've been doing this work of anti-racism. We've been teaching, we've been speaking, we've been advocating, we've been writing. And, and of course, you know, a lot of positive things happened. The world changed, right? We can't say, no, well, well, it never really changed since Dr. King March, not much has changed. That's not true. A lot has changed for the better. But with that murder, I was kind of brought back to square one. And I said, well, what's the purpose of my life? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I, I thought, well, <coughs> you know, I, I want to end racism in the world in my own small way. And, and so that has been that particular journey. Have you witnessed any success in terms of getting through to the senior management people, uh, people who are in upper echelons of, of, of business and within the university, uh, the university structure? That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know how to answer it because, yeah. yeah, I do know how to answer it. I can say that I see a lot of performance. Okay, good, good example here, the Scarborough Charter. You know the Scarborough Charter? Yes, we, we signed on to that. You, yeah. Over something like 50 universities have signed on to the Scarborough Charter. And for people who uh, don't know what the Scarborough Charter is, it's this charter, it's this document 
for fighting, combating, identifying, committing to ending anti-Black racism in universities and other institutions of higher education. It came. It was called the Char- Scarborough Charter because the the architect of it, the person with the vision, was Professor Wisdom Tetty, who was prince is principal at Scarborough College at the University of Toronto. And so, you know, after a month of deliberations and this beautiful document being written up, was sent around to different to all the schools universities and colleges. And we know at least 50 have signed on. My university, Dalhousie, signed on. And you said you have a signed on, right? Yeah, they signed on, correct. But honestly, I, I'm i not sure if the universities, many of those who signed on, including mine, have a real deep, deep commitment to ending anti-Black racism. They take pictures you know, of the president signing these documents that look good. It's on the front page. It's on the website. But um, many of these administrators are still hesitant to take that plunge. And for that, I have to give credit to our president, uh, our new university president at the at University of Alberta, because he, after the agitation of the Black Faculty Collective, which is a group of Black faculty members at the University of Alberta, there's only 20, 30 of us all together. Mm-hmm. We, we said, you have to stop just doing the rhetoric. And you have to do something substantive about this. And he made a big announcement that um, this year, they'll be hiring for every faculty at the University of Alberta. Uh, one faculty member will be Black. Oh wow! Uh, so we, literally, we're going to have from a very small uh, contingent of Black faculty members, we're going to have an influx mm-hmm. because of his his leadership and his and his you know his commitment to try to deal with this. Because I think he gets it. He gets the fact that this is a systemic problem within the university, and we've been talking about it for years now, and the rhetoric is there, but not the reality, not the substance. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to make a difference now. So well, you know, I, I applaud your your president. That is that is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've had other other universities like Dal- Dalhousie. You know, Folsom Dalhousie said to me, "We really have to. We really have to step up now because uh, the president of, of University of Alberta has done this, and is going to force us now to to put more pressure on our administration to do the same." Well, I do. I do hope they step up. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> We have to be confident. We have to give them the benefit of the doubt and and have uh, you know belief in these institutions and 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 think to ourselves, you know, this is something that can happen. This is something that should happen and will happen. Yeah, but you know what, Zach? It's um, yeah. But we have to hold your feet to the fire. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that is a thing because they can just sign this document four or five years down the line. Nothing. Nothing happens. <laughs> so. That has been my experience. Well, just to, just to end off here, for all of our viewers listening, and especially the young Black men and women that may be budding poets or champions for equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, just like yourself, I was wondering what type of advice you'd like to give them? I, w- I would say to uh, several pieces. Find something that you like, whatever it is, math, dancing, Find something that you like that can be a, a vehicle to express that that desire. Because all of us, we all have the desire to self-actualize. It's inbuilt, right? It's an inbuilt desire. So find something you like to do. Find, find a mentor and also get together with a few like-minded people. You know, earlier when we began this show, I talked about the benefit of some of these clubs, like when you're in high school, the student clubs, these are homes. And, and then going on to university, these African-Caribbean student black clubs, these are places where you, you find community, you find a home, you, you find your footing. So, but it's, it's with other people. I like to work collaboratively. You know, the, the saying that no man or no woman is an island, I really believe in that. So it's for young people to to get together, to find like-minded people, but also to to have a mentor, 
I think that's so critical. That is so critical. Uh, the mentor could be your parents. It could be a neighbor. It could be a teacher. Usually in many cases, it's a teacher. But our our children in school, they experience so much racism oftentimes in high school that sometimes it's very difficult to find a teacher as a mentor. But there are church groups, there are religious groups, those kinds of things. So that would be my advice. Volunteer my own children when, when they were coming up as teenagers. I would encourage them to volunteer to be a tutor at the local library because one of our local libraries, they had an English language program for new immigrants coming in who didn't speak English. So to volunteer and get involved in the community. And that's sound advice. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, we want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Cooper, for taking the time uh, to spend a little bit of time with us. And I think we got a much better sense of the work that you do and, uh, and and really the creativity that comes from that work. I mean, it's just, I think that's another added dimension to, to the things that we try to portray to our, our, our students and our uh, and the listeners in this program. There's more to it than just politics. Um, there's also that creativity and agitation uh, that comes from, from the work that you do. So thank you very much for taking the time with us today. You're, mo- you're most welcome. It was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show sponsor, KIAS, the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca. Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Our show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger. And I'm Nicola Barito. Our theme music is Attitude by Wendy Lewis and Dyson Knight. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis people. Find out more about Black Talk at blacktalk.ca.